to read you the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Hello, this is DJ Labcat, and you're listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial, also on your digital radio and on 3cr.org.au. Support your local community radio that supports you with local politics, local music, local poetry, local love. This love is not for sale. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, where we specialise in shining the light on the powers of inequity, of monopoly, of inequality, and uh, the systemic forces behind that. And uh, today we're going to uh, delve into uh, some of the big issues, because goodness me, listeners, uh, coming up to nine years on the show, and I almost feel like I need to change the name of the show. The Renegade Economist, is it no longer relevant? We've gone mainstream. I'm sorry, 3CR listeners. Uh, uh, Wherever you look on uh, The Guardian, uh, last Thursday, Friday, we were very prominently written up by Van Badham regarding the the homeless protest at Bendigo Street. And uh, the article she wrote was, Meet the homeless protesters who are taking on tax breaks for the rich. So uh, you heard me interview uh, Kelly uh, Whitford uh, from the uh, Homeless Persons Union of Victoria a few weeks ago where Van Badham visited and of course she wrote up an absolute storm highlighting of course that there are some 25,000 people on the public housing waiting list and there's 80,000 empty homes so it's just outrageous this is going on the more tax incentives there are uh, the, the, the more likely there is to be uh, homelessness so property speculators are getting all the handouts and here are up to nine properties empty in Bendigo Street uh, Collingwood Still empty, the protest is going on and uh, going from strength to strength. Apparently some meetings with Department of Housing may well be happening, so that's good news, there is traction forward. But how can we uh, wave a wand to uh, push some of the other 80,000 empty properties onto the market quickly? Well, that's the big question, and uh, uh, Van Badham uh, summarised some of our, our key trends here on The Renegade Economist in that article, so it was great to see a few quotes there from uh, Prosper Australia economist Carl Fitzgerald. So following on on this uh, sort of mainstream discussion this week, there's been plenty of talk about the very fast train, hasn't there? And how on earth are we going to finance this multi-billion dollar project? Well, let's have a listen to a little clip from uh, the 7.30 report just the other night. There's no firm plan from the current Prime Minister just yet, but his public ruminations about how such a big idea might be paid for is leading to speculation it could form part of the government's bid for re-election. He calls it value capture, which works by tapping into rising land values created by a new train line to help raise the money to actually build it. And the Prime Minister's a big fan. He can certainly contribute to financing a project. Look, uh, as, as you know, we have a new cities and uh, new approach to infrastructure. Uh, Obviously there'll always be a big role for the government to make grants, to make direct investments, but there's also the opportunity to capture some of the considerable value that is created in land by the construction of transport infrastructure. That's how railways were financed in the 19th century actually. It's not actually a radical new plan at all, it's actually a sensible old plan that's been forgotten. 
That, of course, was Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull talking about value capture. As you know, I've been referencing some key statements uh, by Lucy Turnbull, Malcolm's wife, uh, from probably uh, seven, eight years ago in the early days of this show. She's been talking about it for a long time, so great to see that Malcolm uh, can see the rationality of that. As you know, in the past, he's also written about concerns over the monopolization of our DNA, particularly uh, breast cancer screening-related gene BRAC1, which uh, Myriad Technologies is trying to monopolise here in Australia through a, uh, a local uh, a shelf company, it sounds like. So uh, it, it's good that there's some rationality here in Australian politics. As we look at what's happening in America, it, it's kind of depressing, but uh, Sure, we've got the Libs doing this. Uh, you know, we had a call today from Parliament House uh, summarising one of the, the two uh, big inquiries into value capture that have gone on recently. Uh, there was one on the uh, scrutiny into government budget measures that was set up after the uh, hockey budget debacle, and uh, that, that morphed into a value capture type inquiry that, Catherine Cashmore, our president, myself presented at back in November last year. And then a more uh, refined, focused federal inquiry was announced for which we submitted on uh, the role of value capture and infrastructure. So John Alexander um, heads up that committee and uh, you're about to hear another clip from him in a few minutes. But uh, uh, what also has been uh, happening is that in New South Wales, as this looming budget pressure of $80 billion that the states need to find, thanks to Joe Hockey's um, uh, hackathon budget uh, a couple of years ago, uh, they need to find $80 billion to cover school and education funding, and it's really causing quite some pressure Turnbull has been quite Machiavellian in offering all sorts of different possible funding uh, mechanisms to the states, including them having a share of income taxes. But uh, this has been shot down rather quickly. He's also talked about the need for uh, a greater use of land taxes, which is our most efficient tax. And uh, Michael Pascoe, the Fairfax journalist, has been very prominent. He's written a number of hard-hitting articles summarising why we need to get our head around this and uh, uh, really pushing the public to consider how fair it is when people can enjoy a 7.25% average increase in the value of their property over the last 30 years and uh, happily pocket that but then when they're asked to pay back 1.3% of it, it's way too difficult. So we've got to find a way forward. And for that reason, I invited Michael Pascoe onto today's show. This week, listeners, we're with Michael Pascoe, one of uh, Australia's most respected economic commentators. You see him in the Sydney Morning Herald. He's uh, in the age, all of Fairfax uh, print. So, Michael, fantastic to have you on The Renegade Economist. And last week, uh, you put out some very powerful articles talking about the need to get serious on uh, reforming our favourite topic here on 3CR, and that's reforming property taxes. Uh, why have you taken such a passion to this line of thinking? Well, basically, there's there's two sides to it. One is, 
what one writer has called the pantomime villain of Australian taxation, and that is conveyancing stamp duty. Uh, it is simply ridiculous, a bad tax, an inequitable tax, a, an economically damaging tax to hit people with stamp duty when they buy a property. This is, you know, a truth universally known that it's a bad thing. So on one hand, um, stamp duty is bad, is evil, and every state treasurer knows it. They just lack the spine to do something about it. On the other hand, land tax is a very fine tax. If we're going to have to pay tax, we should pay tax in the most efficient, the most reasonable and most equitable way. You need a mixture of taxes, but land tax should be a key part of it. Um, we are not taxing most of our land. Uh, the owner-occupied uh, tax haven of the sacred family home, plus a few other odds and sods as well, are missing from what would be a reasonable tax net. Um, it's pretty hard not to be in favour of something which would lift the economy, would provide a more equitable society and basically provide the means to provide the services we want as a society. And it's that closed-loop nature of a land tax that's so attractive. When uh, we segue over to something such as uh, high-speed rail, which has been throughout the news cycle this week. Uh, it has, but gee, there's high-speed rail and high-speed rail. You know, there's been uh, there's been a long history of politicians with thought bubbles, plus rail fanatics saying we should have a very high-speed rail connection from Sydney to, to Melbourne, maybe via Canberra. Um, I sometimes wonder if that's because politicians go on their study tours and have a nice experience on the bullet train or in France and think, gee, we'd like one too. Uh, I don't think, and every rational examination of it has shown that they don't actually add up. Uh, we don't yet have the, the uh, population densities to justify it. And it overlooks how competitive airline travel is. You know, if you've got a, a plane taking off between Melbourne and Sydney every 15, every 10, 15 minutes in peak hour at a very competitive price, the airline industry wouldn't, wouldn't roll over uh, for someone who wants to spend an absolute fortune putting in long-distance high-speed rail. However, as politicians have tried to find a way of making the uneconomic economic, they are seizing on the very reasonable idea of value capture to make it work. John Alexander this week, the uh, Sydney backbencher who has a passion for high-speed rail. I think value capture is, uh, has got the potential of being able to fund the entire project. And there, there are those who think that way, and there's those like Anthony Albanese who don't share this joyous view. But he's been wrong before, he'll be wrong again. Government backbencher John Alexander has been heading a government inquiry into how value capture could help fund major infrastructure projects. The Sydney-based MP thinks it could be just the ticket for fast rail. I think, strangely, we've come across a perfect storm of opportunity in that Sydney is the second most expensive real estate in the world, Melbourne is the, the fourth most expensive, and the opportunity to release incredible amounts of land that are, have got very low cost that could be 20 or 30 minutes from the CBD gives that opportunity of enormous uh, value uplift and therefore the opportunity of value capture to fund that infrastructure. He floated the idea that if you put high-speed rail from Sydney to Goulburn, 
a house in Goulburn currently worth $200,000 would suddenly be worth $600,000 because it's only 30 minutes from the CBD. Well, that would have to be a very fast train indeed to get there in 30 minutes. Um, that doesn't really add up. It might in another century or two, but uh, not now. What is interesting, though, is a proposal that was around at the start of this century to have maglev high-speed rail on a much shorter distance from, in Sydney's case, from Sydney to Newcastle, Wollongong and the Blue Mountains. You could, certainly could build a case there for value capture, especially if you had a rational land tax that would provide a fair bit of money for a government um, prepared to back that sort of high-speed rail. Well, the good news is that more and more interest groups are coming to understand that a land tax can be a useful mechanism to uh, not only facilitate uh, workers moving closer to their homes by reforming stamp duties and replacing with land tax, but there are private uh, consortiums they've been described as uh, approaching the government saying that look there is some business case to to if you like build a uh, a new s- series of suburbs on the outskirts of a Goulburn or uh, Bendigo and, and such uh, cities. So it, it was very interesting seeing the the report that you launched up in Sydney last week, uh, taking on tax, reforming New South Wales property taxes. And it had a very interesting new network between the New South Wales Business Chamber, the New South Wales Council of Social Services and the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. So quite disparate groups all coming together on the rationality of uh, this closed loop form of uh, revenue raising. It, it is, and it's symptomatic of something we're seeing more and more of, that when, when politicians fail, it is interesting that civil society is beginning to step forward to fill the gap. I mean, you get serious tax reform in one of two ways. You either get it from a crisis that forces you to do it, or you get it through leadership. And unfortunately, there's not much in the way of leadership around at the federal or at most state levels. There are exceptions, but by and large, um, you know, the pollies are looking after their own jobs, their own short-term jobs first, everything else second. So civil society is increasingly stepping forward saying, look, we're open to reform because we understand better than the pollies that for our standards of living to be sustainable, for us to continue to have the society we want to have, we have to be prepared to fix things that need fixing. And it's a pretty easy target to pick on stamp duty when every report, every study, every inquiry, every half-intelligent look at it has said stamp duty is dumb. Replacing it with a broad land tax is simply a no-brainer. So here you had quite disparate groups, as you just mentioned, the the New South Wales Business Chamber, the Council of Social uh, Service and a a major union saying, yep, we can see that this is a good idea. Uh, It's expensive, though. Um, You know, the figures that were put forward in that study, they commissioned KPMG to to do the modelling. While it came up with uh, good scores for economic growth, and it's purely replacing stamp duty, with land tax, uh, it's budget neutral. It still comes up with a sticker shock for the average Sydney house. And that's what has politicians running scared. 
So Michael Pascoe from Fairfax Media, let's spell that out a bit because uh, Brian Tui in the AFR wrote a bit of a scare piece uh, in the day after the report saying that a homeowner in Mossman would pay some $24,000 a year in land tax. Uh, A $1.3 million home in Melbourne would pay $17,000 in land tax. And we need to take the, the, the understanding to the next step to say, well, hang on a minute, if you're actually buying in those communities... Uh, uh, that $17,000 annual land tax would be taken off your purchase price over the next 20 years. So you would incorporate that into your purchase price that you had to pay this upcoming fee in, in future years. The KPMG report, uh, the modelling is is building in this aspect, but uh, uh, they couldn't make definitive statements about the distributional impacts of such uh, a switch. Uh, how do you think we take this this level of understanding forward without the, the relevant model? modelling in place? Um, look, it is hard because that, that's sticker shock and I, I would just stress that, that it, it, the tax is on the land value. Um, I know the Victorians like to tax capital improvements as well, um, but just on the land value, if the land is worth that 1.3 odd million, a tax of 1.3%, yep, it's it's a, an absolute shock. Uh, you know, 17 grand a year sounds like a lot to suddenly pay in tax. But to put that in perspective, that's 1.3%. The 30-year average of housing price appreciation is 7.25%. So while homeowners are appalled at having to pay 1.3%, they feel entitled to a windfall capital gain of 7.25%. And don't forget that the family home is already a tax haven. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's dubious uh, that the that there is no capital gain tax on the family home anyway. So if you put that 1.3% in the context of the long-term capital gain, and maybe you could, to help sell it, you could even do a deal that um, you could have a land tax as a percentage of capital gain. Um, you know, there's all sorts of compromises along the way to make people realise that it's it's not that rich. Um, with with that rise in in land value, the appreciation of land value, it's worth perhaps thinking about that for a moment too. What does someone who owns a block of land do to deserve the price of that block of land going up in price? Uh, it's a windfall gain. It's really society that provides the lift in value. It's society that creates the extra demand for land, that improves the infrastructure, that improves the education and health possibilities that make any given block of land worth more now than what it was in the past. So it's not unreasonable for society to get a share of that appreciation. And uh, a part of the mix that could well come out uh, from this report was the fact that uh, every citizen would benefit by $1,600 a year in terms of the efficiency gains. So how could we roll that into to some sort of uh, uh, implementation strategy so that uh, there was not such a, a sticker shock? I, I think that's much harder. That's one of those theoretical economic modelling type figures that everyone on average is better off by 1600 bucks. Well, the person in the street, the voter in the street, doesn't see that. What they see is what would be leaving their pocket 
every quarter as they pay the land tax. I, I think there would have to be an avenue to uh, let land tax capitalise, let it come out of the eventual sale of a property, perhaps um, to make it payable for many people. If, if you're a pensioner who's living in a house, a house you don't want to leave, and suddenly you get whacked with a, a whopping great land tax, um, you know, the theoretical modelling of that you're $1,600 a year better off just won't wash. People, of course, don't realise that they are already paying that amount on average through stamp duty, through extra costs built into the system. That is, a very, you know, when it's not seen, it's very hard to explain it to people. I think part of the sales job has to be a very gentle dose of pain. Um, I had the, the pleasure of co-chairing the 2011 tax summit, um, and I had the state tax session where we had the treasurer of every state and territory plus the Commonwealth treasurer in the room. You could hit them over the head in public and they had to take it. It was great fun. And every one of them knew that scrapping stamp duty, replacing it with land tax was the right thing to do. But none of them, with the exception of the ACT at the time, was prepared to go further. The ACT went home, didn't have to go very far home, did their own study and politically has been able to begin the process by phasing it in over 20 years. It's a bit easier for the ACT because it's also the local government authority so they can avoid that evil word of tax and just say that they're increasing rates to cover stamp duty as they phase out stamp duty and increase rates. You still have people complaining and you know there is a, there is a very fair case for someone who can't afford to pay uh, skyrocketing rates when their income's not rising, which is why I think you've got to be prepared to, to capitalise those things. You can, of course, expect the usual backlash. Um, people will call this a death duty by stealth. Uh, well, there's a case to be made. There's nothing wrong with death duties. They're also a perfectly reasonable sort of a tax. And when it's, when it, again, to stress it, when it's coming out of a windfall appreciation that hasn't been earned by the landholder in the value of the land, um, why not? Yes, well, the value of Australian uh, land increased by $525 billion last year, and here we have all three levels of government are costing about $500 billion. So uh, they're scratching around for $80 billion to cover health and education. The money is there, but the problem is the public education system. Michael Pascoe, any last tips? Which government department, where do you think we can apply pressure that uh, some bureaucrat can say, look, we can see the logjam here, we know it's the best system, but the people... People just aren't getting it. Uh, we, we need uh, the, the nation's best comedians and cartoonists to break this down so everyone understands. How does it happen? Well, I'll, I'll go back to what I said earlier. You get change, you get tax reform out of crisis or leadership. And the state governments have a crisis on the way. The reality of our demographics, some states more so than others, uh, we are heading for a crisis. It was admitted at, after the uh, COAG meeting uh, that you know the uh, the band-aid offer of a few billion dollars to the states will get them out to 2020 on health spending. Beyond that, even a rich state like New South Wales begins to run into problems. A state like South Australia uh, is heading towards a demographic brick wall, and the state, the South Australian government, is is aware of that and it's doing more than most to 
to try to come to terms with it. As states begin to go broke, and if the federal coalition continues with its policy of putting the squeeze on states to uh, make the hard political decisions, they'll simply have to do it. You know, when you have when you have a shortage of beds in hospitals, when you have people dying in ambulances, uh, when the states are simply not capable of paying for what people demand, that's when that crisis forces change. Well, Michael Pascoe, thanks very much for your time here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. Pleasure. Well, there we have it. Uh, uh, even Michael Pascoe saying that uh, there's some economic uh, pain to come. We've lived beyond our means for too long. All of these uh, cutbacks, all of this tax avoidance, we really just uh, are, are running on the spot. Our tax system is is causing as many problems as it's solving and uh, all of this uh, middle-class welfare, we, we're all... Uh, needing to pay our mortgage uh, these family tax uh, payments a and b are very handy when you've got young kids uh, but uh, in the end it helps uh, push up the price of land so uh, just want to step through again this um, this uh, land tax story if you were paying seventeen thousand dollars per uh, household this is based on the land value itself and uh, you'll note that uh, for those of you who have uh, council rating notices the valuation of your land is often uh, about 20 odd percent lower than what you'll see for market prices uh, in your neighborhood and that's because land valuers uh, recognize that uh, too many people are paying above what the earning capacity of your neighborhood is worth and they're paying more than they should because uh, they're betting that there'll be expected future capital gains. So they'll pay off this extra debt when they sell the house and uh, it's a sure thing. Property prices always go up. Sounds very much like Alan Greenspan, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah, say you pay this $17,000 a year. Consider at the moment uh, you and your partner probably pay around about uh, $9,000 each. So that's already more than uh, what the land tax bill, bill is. But the way land taxes work is that it in effect channels the naturally rising value of land away from the banking system and back towards government. And this is the natural source of funding government. <clears throat> you know, to govern the land, you really have to, to get a grip of inbuilt capacity of the community creating the value um, of, of being in that location. And so it's a community that creates the value. They should get a share of it back. And that's what Michael Pascoe said quite nicely. So imagine if you, you recognize you had this $17,000 bill coming up each year. Well, that's over 20 years, which, you know, I've told you this formula before, but generally to work out the value of a property, you look at what you could rent it out over 20 years and say today's market rate is uh, $25,000 well there you go there's uh, some $500,000 there that property is worth so um here we are, we're paying $17,000 a year, that's $340,000. You recognise you've got that bill coming up each and every year, so you take that off what you're willing to purchase. So uh, the example we used today was a $1.3 million valued piece of land. So uh, all of a sudden that becomes $960,000. So the interest saving on that $340,000 differential would be some $2,400 a month. 
$28,800 in total. So these are pretty broad brush figures. Uh, As I discussed in the interview, I really wish this was modelled. It would give us more confidence. But uh, uh, there you see see you're saving $28,800 in interest, but you're paying $17,000 in land tax. So there you are, some $12,000 better off, and it's easier and cheaper to move at the moment. Uh, some 15% of stamp duties are paid in affordable housing type uh, communities, those suburbs out on the sprawl, that's who pays the majority of stamp duty. But those in the wealthy locations of Turak, South Yarra and so forth uh, through to Sandringham, they're only paying about 4%. So with a land tax, that would reverse that situation. So uh, the further you lived away from prime location, from uh, the best nature, the best schools, the best health, Uh, the best public transport, all of those things, uh, the further you live away, the less you would pay, uh, and that would help to offset perhaps your petrol bills uh, traveling around. So uh, that's the sort of parameter we need to to keep looking into, especially as the Panama Papers uh, raise the ire of so many uh, honest taxpayers as they see what some of the elite are up to in hiding their taxes versus uh, the hard workers who never uh, scrimp on paying their taxes. But, uh, you know, seven years after the the G7, that might have been the G20 even said, look, tax havens have got to stop. Well, over 200,000 taxable entities are based in the Virgin Islands, which David Cameron could very quickly sort out if he wanted to. So uh, the thing about land is you can't hide it in Panama. You cannot put it in a tax haven in the Virgin Islands. So uh, that's why more and more economists like Michael Pascoe see it as uh, a way forward. So uh, check out the Earthsharing Facebook page uh, for a nice little uh, poster we put out on why stamp duties are so good shared by uh, over 30 odd people on twitter as well at earth sharing so great to have your support out there keep the good feedback coming and uh, write in those letters and comments uh, supporting this movement it's hard taking on the property owners of the of this entire planet but it is happening so thanks very much 3cr